Kevin said it right during the children's message. This is uh, kind of a weighty passage today. And in fact, I'm going to break maybe a rule um, that, that you should probably adhere to when speaking to an audience or public speaking. Um, I'm going to go ahead and let you guys know I'm probably going to go long today. Okay? And I know that is breaking rules because it doesn't necessarily elicit a ton of excitement for what's about to take place. Right? Thank you. But uh, the reason is because it's so important. And it demands thoughtful consideration and application. It doesn't need to just be addressed and moved on. We need to really soak it in. And so it's a reminder for all of us this morning that we're not here to adhere to a schedule. Right? This isn't about just a checklist for your Sunday routine. We're here to sit under the authority of a sacred text. We're here to worship a holy God. We're not here to adhere to a time schedule. And so uh, with that being said, I, I want you to buckle up, get comfortable. Um, maybe you brought snacks, hopefully. Um, some of you are like, oh, not in the sanctuary. Uh, but either way, uh, we're really going to, to dive into this, okay? And so, uh, that being said, a um, couple weeks, not a couple weeks, a couple months ago, my family, we were in Grapevine, Texas for the Christmas season. That's one of our favorite cities to go to during Christmas because when you walk through downtown Grapevine, it feels like you're walking in a Christmas movie in, in a lot of ways. And you get to go in and out of these stores, these antique shops that have great Christmas decorations, a lot of gifts, a lot of, a lot of different things you can see. And so we walked into this one store, and as we walked in there, we came across these, like, wood plaques. You know what I'm talking about. Kind of have all those different signs. You've seen these. They're typically distressed wood, and they've got some sort of clever or, or inspirational saying and kind of a white or black ink painted on them. Th- things that kind of get you to think, like, one of them might say something along the lines, it's not how big the house, it's how happy is the home, right? Or collect moments, not things. One of my my favorites I saw recently, welcome to our home where dog hair is both a fashion accessory and a condiment. I thought that would work really great in our house. And so here we are, we're looking at these these little signs in these sayings, and all of a sudden my wife gets excited. She goes, oh, I found it. This is perfect. This is just like you. And you think about all the different sayings that, that would maybe my wife would be inspired to give her husband with all the different options, but she grabs it, runs to the cash register, pays for it, and then hands me this, this wonderful little sign. It says, I'm not arguing. I'm just explaining why I'm right. And she said, this says you perfectly. And I will admit, it does speak to my personality. In fact, most of my childhood, I was known to be somewhat opinionated, somewhat argumentative, to the, so much so that my mom and I would constantly go back and forth over matters of school or discipline, and she'd ultimately leave my room just exhausted with the point-counterpoint discussion, which is why later in high school, when I told her that I was feeling led to be a missionary and she was dealing with the fear of having her son live in another country, she would always respond, oh, but Jeremiah, the world needs good Christian lawyers, because she knew I love to argue, right? And that was what she thought. And so uh, the reality is, is that that's kind of the nature of every debate, right? Two sides looking at an issue and trying to convince each other who's right and who's wrong. Now, you may be sitting there saying, well, this doesn't really apply to me because I don't like to argue. I tend to avoid debates. But the reason I bring this up and the reason I thought that sign applied is because all of us in some capacity are constantly making daily decisions to figure out what is right and what is wrong. And how do we know? Think about the way in which that question permeates life. 
Look at the recent current events, right? Not too long ago, we saw this news erupt out of Virginia when the governor, Ralph Northam, was found as being said in regards to this issue of abortion and infanticide that they would make the infant comfortable while parents and doctors could determine next steps. And with this quote, this firestorm of media attention descended upon this man. And what did they discover? But back in 1984, a photo from a college party where he went in blackface or KKK. And so with this one political elected official, we have discussions of abortion, racism, which Similar to that discussion that week, there was another accusation that erupted out of Virginia, this professor that accused the lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax, of sexually assaulting her back in 2004 during the Democratic National Convention, an allegation he denies. Now you have racism, abortion, sexual assault. I'm in China, and I'm looking through Twitter, I'm turning on the news, and I'm constantly seeing the bickering and the arguing of the government shutdown, constantly finger-pointing, looking at immigration, safety, border control, money, how it should be spent. We have shootings that take place in our country, and immediately you see this argument about what's right and wrong. Should we exercise more control, or should we defend people's rights to defend their homes? We can have arguments about money, and how much should be taxed, and how much it should be given, and where it should go, and over and over again people dispute what is right, what is wrong. How do we know? This is part of the reason there's such hostility. Part of the reason there's such an argument is we're grappling for some sort of morality, some sort of litmus test that helps us find our way and find some form of an answer. And so what is that morality? What is this moral code that we're trying to adhere to? The reason there's such division, and the reason there's such an argument is because this moral code is severely lacking. And so we, we live in what feels like one giant argument, just a screaming match between two sides. In fact, a recent survey with NBC News says that more than 80% of Americans would classify the country as totally or mainly divided. The only thing we agree on is division. And why is that? Part of it is because of the inconsistencies of these stances. So what happens is, is we'll, we'll spend time. Now, maybe we don't manifest our opinions the same way. Some of us look at these issues and we run to some platform to try to conv convince others of, that our side is right. So we choose something really effective like Facebook. <laughs> Read this article and your mind will be changed. Some of us, we keep our opinions to ourselves. Maybe we tell just our closest friends and confidants, right? But we all look at these things and we make our own decisions of what is right and what is wrong. And in that process, we tend to identify key issues, right? Knowing that nothing is perfect, so this issue is going to matter the most to me and therefore I'm going to align with this tribe, this group. And now I'm following the rules of this tribe that's going to tell me to only fight for certain issues and really give no consideration to the inconsistencies and the morality that they're using within those issues. How can you fight for the dignity of a human life based on its skin color, but be so dismissive when talking about birth? How can you fight so passionately about the right to life, 
and so quickly choose to carry a gun that can kill or support war, capital punishment, all these inconsistencies. And when we see these inconsistencies in the other side, what do we think? How could they? They're so broken. That morality is so twisted, which is why we get entrenched even further into our view of what is right and wrong. And the reason it creates a cycle of division and debate is because it's a broken code of morality. It's inconsistent. There is no real way. And so what has given us this guidance? What is it that's directing this morality? Well, here's what we tend to see, is that more often than not, this new morality that is now being, I guess, trumpeted and adhered to, there was an article that was written by the Barna Research Institute back in 2016. And he said a majority of Americans, 80%, are concerned about the moral state of our country, regardless of race, gender, age, creed, political affiliation, socioeconomic status, we all agree that the morality is broken. And so what are we using to help us make these decisions? Well, the majority of Americans, more than 57%, would say the way in which we determine right and wrong is through personal experience. And this is what creates so many problems. Listen to this quote that that the president of the Barna Research offers, David Kinnaman, that I think summarizes this mentality fairly well. He mentions, if I have it with me, he mentions that the basic approach is the discovery of self, to believe in your personal experience. And so there are these different quotes, these different things that are referenced within the, the context of this discussion that that suggest all those different things that give in to that idea. He says, the highest good, according to our society, is finding yourself and then living by what is right for you. Listen to some of these statistics that he includes in this survey. 91% of Americans, including a majority of Christians, would say that the best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. 89% of Americans, including a majority of Christians, would say people should not criticize someone else's life choices. Seventy-nine percent, including a majority of Christians, would say people can believe whatever they want, as long as those beliefs don't affect society. It's a way of saying, I want to do what's right for me. And we would like to say that this is constrained towards the political arena. But this is the brokenness of morality in any situation. Why does a home break down? Why does divorce ensue? It's because at some point, a spouse turns to their partner and says, I want to go do what I want. So I'm going to go engage in infidelity, adultery, whatever it is. Why does a child rebel from their parents? Because at some point, they're tired of listening to mom and dad, and they say, I'm going to go do what I want. Why does the addict reach for the next glass, the next hit? Why? Because that voice that says, I'm going to do what I want. Why does greed so easily lead us astray? Because I'm going to do what I want. It's this broken morality that is incredibly counter to the gospel. The gospel is not look within yourself. The gospel is look beyond yourself. It's not fulfill your wants. It's die to your wants. And yet this is how we're leaving. And so you would hope that because it's counter to the gospel that the church would be the one refuge that we could cling to that would protect us from this way of thinking. But the reality is, is that it's eked its way into our churches. And even our relationship with Christ and our understanding of church is cloaked by this me-centered mentality. 
right, so I'm going to choose this church because I like that pastor. He was funny. He was engaging. I felt fed. I loved the music. They chose the right instruments. They did it in the right way. It was cool. It was edgy. It was relevant. Did you see the building? It was cool. It was neat. You could tell this is where people like me go. And so it becomes even how we view our faith. And it's not just those of us that, that choose to come to church. It's those of us that lead church. Right now you've got pastors and worship leaders and musicians and all these people that know that we want to be satisfied by our own desires. And so what do we do? We water down the gospel. And we give you a message that makes you feel more comfortable. Or we, we write songs and we sing songs that once again reaffirm it's all about us. It's a broken morality. Listen to this other quote that Kinnaman offers us. He says, there's a tremendous amount of individualism in today's society, and that's reflected in the church too. Millions of Christians have grafted new age dogma onto their spiritual person. When we peel back the layers, we find that many Christians are using the way of Jesus to pursue the way of self. Let me say that again. Many Christians are using the way of Jesus to pursue the way of self. While we wring our hands about secularism spreading through culture, a majority of church-going Christians have embraced corrupt, me-centered theology. What's going on here? Why is that so alluring? Why is this the morality that helps us govern right and wrong? What's really at play? My suggestion is that it's not really about right and wrong. It's about power. We don't really care the name of the president, the governor, or the senator. We want our side to win. Because then my version of my truth is affirmed. And my life gets more comfortable according to my code. It's about power. I want to get to decide what's right and wrong for me. And so that's what I would argue, and that's what we're going to explore today. Here's the one part I would contend with David Kinnaman's quote there. This is not a new age dogma. It's as old as creation itself. We can find it in the garden. We see it clearly in the drama that unfolds between the serpent, the woman, and the man. So to make sure that we read this drama appropriately, let's pray that God's Spirit would give us the humility and the wisdom we so desperately need. Father in heaven, we come before you fully mindful of our need to know your truth. So open your word, Father. Help us to see as you see. Help us to surrender our own inclinations that we can reunite ourselves to you. We thank you for this time. We steward it now to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 3. We got a lot to cover. As you're turning there, let me offer a couple disclaimers about this passage. Um, in one sense, I want to tell you that I love this text, which seems a little morbid because it is a terrible text. It, it's, it's a discussion of a tragedy. And that's probably one of the first things I want to share in terms of expectations today. Listen, we're talking about a tragedy. This is not a passage that lends itself to excitement and enthusiasm and inspiration. Okay? 
And so we're going to sit under the tragedy today. But here's what I hope it achieves for us. What I hope it achieves is that it creates an awareness within our minds of how deception works. And the more we are aware of this deception, the better we are able to guard against it in today's life. So that's my first hope. But I also hope in looking at this tragedy, it awakens within us an understanding of just how broken we are. That we are, in fact, sinners. And we need saving. And that saving cannot be done by our own account. We need one who is mighty to save, one that is mighty to rescue. So my hope is that we are awakened to that need and that reality. That being said, let's take a look at this passage. We're actually going to start in chapter 2, verse 25. If you mentioned, or if you remember last week, I said that 2, verse 25 is really a better beginning point to the fall. So start with me there, and we'll read through chapter 3, verse 7. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some. She ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, the reason we start with 2.25 is because it serves as an appropriate transition to the fall. And the reason we can say that is because of this word naked. It's an interesting connection, and it connects us to the fall in a couple of ways. First, it's used as an alliteration to another description that we see in chapter 3, verse 1, in describing the serpent. That doesn't resonate with us in the English, but you see it in the Hebrew, right? Naked for the humanity that's described there in 2.25 is Aram, and then when you read this description of the serpent, it's Arum. Very similar in sound. And so it has this draw, this connection, yet it also is highlighting a distinction that there's this innocence that currently exists with the couple, but the serpent has something, a craftiness. There's this pursuit of wisdom that's going to kind of navigate and compel and propel this story. The other reason we can start with 2.25 is the way that it ends in 3.7, with a repeat of a realization of man and woman in their nakedness. But again, we have a different term. We have Aram in 2.25, and then we have Aram with an E in 3.7. Now, these two terms are used very sparingly in the Old Testament, and so it's not very simple to, to identify the distinction, but there is an important distinction. And the way in which we can understand that distinction is to see how they're used in other parts of the Scripture. And what we see with the term in 3.7 is something totally different than what's mentioned in 2.25. Here's how we can find that out. You don't have to turn there, but that same term that we have for nakedness in 3.7 is also used in Deuteronomy 28. Listen to the tone of Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity, therefore in hunger and thirst and nakedness, in dire poverty, you will serve the enemies the Lord sends 
against you. What we have with this term in 3.7 is not innocence, but judgment. And that's the whole progression of the fall. How did this couple, this man and this woman, go from in innocence to now having their eyes open to the fact that they sit under the judgment of God? What happened? How did we get there? And that's what we're going to look at today. Now, before we get into the details of the deception, let's first have a better understanding of the players that contribute to this drama. We've already looked to man and woman. We've seen their creation over the last several weeks and the significance of them being made in the image of God. But now in chapter 3 enters something else into the scene, a serpent. We need to understand this serpent and all that the serpent represents. So how is the serpent described here in the scriptures? Well, first you see this word crafty. And in this is not true wisdom in the sense of what you see biblically in discussions of wisdom. It's, this is a term that seems to imply there's something else, something somewhat hidden or shrewd, almost sneaky about this serpent. But we also have another important description that says, he was more crafty than all the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now that's a very significant statement that we need to understand for a moment. So let's, let's work through that because I'm wondering... Who is the serpent? Where did he come from? A lot of uh, narrative, I guess, in kind of Christian tradition would seem to suggest that the serpent is Satan. Right? He is the devil. Now, what I would say for the sake of today's conversation is that we have nothing in this particular text that explicitly states the serpent is in fact Satan. Okay? That, that is not clearly identified here. Okay? Now, what we do have is clearly the spirit of deception that is absolutely the same spirit that the scriptures indicate Satan uses in other situations. And so we are looking at a text that is emblematic and, and in fact probably um, helps us understand who Satan is and how he functions and how he acts. What I'm trying to tell you is that we have to be careful before we just say the serpent is Satan because it says the Lord God made him. And when we all of a sudden make that connection, then a very fascinating question emerges. Did God create Satan? Did he create evil? Now that's a very tricky conversation that really requires a greater consultation of all the scriptures. And so we need to understand what is being said here. Here's what I believe is being explained to us in the course of this narrative, right? This is not a narrative that is designed to help us understand the origins of evil. It helps us understand the nature of evil and how evil unfolds. It does not help us understand the origins of it. And the reason we can say that is because of what we see in chapter 2, right? Because evil's already been mentioned. But the creation of this tree of knowledge of good and evil. And so how are we to understand this? What I believe is transpiring here in the garden is a greater understanding to how God has created us. What God has decided to do in the creation of this man and this woman is to give us freedom, but freedom with restraint. All right, what does he say? You are free. Free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat here. Freedom, yet restraint. Freedom, but limitation. Why is that? The reason is because you can't truly appreciate or understand freedom without also understanding restraint. Absolute freedom is not freedom. It's anarchy. Right? It's 
it's, it, it prevents us from understanding the gift that is freedom. And so what we can see with what God has created here is he's created us in such a way that we can appreciate the ability to distinguish between freedom and restraint, which implies he's created man and woman with the capacity to choose. Not choice that derails his sovereignty or thwarts his ultimate plan, but the ability to choose, will I agree with the restraint that God has placed on me? Now think about this. If God had not given humanity, man and woman, the ability to choose, then why even offer the command, don't eat? Right? If, he's, if there, it was impossible... Right? If there was no element of choice and there was no possibility for man and woman to choose to rebel against God, then why offer the restraint at all? It becomes a ludicrous command. It'd be like me telling you all, hey, don't fly like a bird on the way home. It's a silly statement because you can't do it. Right? So for, for God to offer a command that is impossible to, to break would be silly. But when I say, hey, don't eat... It helps us remember that there is a capacity to choose. And so what's happening here, the story that's unfolding is not so much about the origins of evil, but us understanding that God has created us in such a way to appreciate the freedom that is a gift by also placing restraints and creating us in such a way that we have the capacity to choose. And the reason that's significant is because he created us for relationship. He created us for worship. He created us for love. And those things are more glorified when they are chosen. You can't force someone into worship. He doesn't want robotic and blind obedience. Love that is forced ceases to be love. God is love. So he creates in such a way. So what we have here in this drama is not a robust, clearly explained detail to help us understand the origins of evil, but how we were created and the capacity we have to choose to go against the restraints God has placed on us as a gift. So how do we fall victim to that? What are the tactics of this deception? Well, let's look at what the serpent has to say before we get even halfway into his sentence with the first two words. We see the first tactic that the serpent employs. He simply says, did God? And those two words should leap off the page at their hearers. Now, we again don't see it in the English, but here's what just happened. More than 20 times in the first few chapters of Genesis, every reference to God is Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh Elohim. This is a complete and robust title of who God is. Yahweh signifying the covenantal relationship of God, this intimate God, this God of promises, and Elohim speaking to the divinity, the creator, the, the creative ability of God. And as soon as the serpent opens his mouth, he drops Yahweh and only says Elohim. Did God. And with that statement, what has he done? He has distorted the nature and character of God. And that's how almost every deception begins. With a distorted view of God's character. Where all of a sudden, if God doesn't appear to be covenantal, doesn't appear to be intimate, a God of promises, a God of caring, but he's simply a creator, well now it's more likely that I will lose trust in him. More likely that I can question him. This is how deception begins. We lose sight of the character and the nature of God. This is why questions like, could God really create a hell? Questions like, why is there suffering that exists 
on this planet that leads us to conclusions, well, if that happens and those things exist, well, then God is not loving. Therefore, I want no part of you. And we lose trust. This is how deception begins. Diminish the character of God. And the serpent has placed that thought in the mind of woman with two simple words. Did God. Now, the second part of creating that distrust is to question not just his character, but question his word. Did God really say? Now, this is a very interesting statement. Because what this has done is it's created a shift in the dynamic. Right? He is now going to question the word of God. Everything about the relationship between man and woman and their creator has been not just what they've seen in creation, but how God has informed their understanding of creation through what he has said, what they have heard, listening to the word of God. And so we know that the serpent's direct assault is not just on his character, but on his word. And so now he's going to try to twist it and maneuver it in a different way. And even by asking the question, did God really say, you know what we have here? We have the first theological conversation in the course of human history. I think it was Walter Brueggemann that said it like this. It's the first conversation that is not with God, that is not to God, but that is about God. Did God really say? That statement alone elicits within the woman's understanding that, oh, I can actually step back and think critically about what God has said. I can critique it. I can evaluate it. I can make my own determination about what it means to me and its value. He shifts ever so slightly the position of authority and the posture with which we approach God's word. This is something that you and I need to understand very quickly, right? Because listen, this doesn't mean that we should cease to think critically about God's word. Of course we have to exhaust it, understand it, think critically, seek to understand it in all of its fullness. But hear me, there's a massive difference between approaching God's word, seeking to master it, and be mastered by it. The second is the one that carries humility. The second is the one that gives it authority. Right, so a lot of times we sit there and we just dismiss it all together and say, well, God wouldn't really say it, or maybe we still approach it, but we still just come at it with a sense of, well, I'm going to master this, I'm going to critique it, and I'm going to curate it to fit my needs, rather than submit to it and say, it needs to master who I am. Did God really say? Four simple words that have already laid the groundwork of this deception. And so what is the question? Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? It's a remarkable statement because it's actually an inversion of what God said. It's the opposite. God actually said, you're free to eat from every fruit. But the serpent says, did he restrict you from all of it? Something happens. There are two things that I want to highlight for you. Number one, God's word has been distorted. How many examples do I need to conjure up for us this morning of the times that people have taken God's word to distort it to their own gain? How many times have we seen this beautiful sacred word misused and twisted and turned in the name of violence, in the name of power, in the name of abuse? The question for us is, are you able to recognize when it's being distorted? Do you know it well enough? Do you soak it in? Do you study it? Are you able to ascertain that when there's a message in culture that says the best way to determine right and wrong is to look within yourself, you can rise up and say, wrong. That's not how it was created. Are you able to determine when a pastor or a musician gets up on the stage and begins to speak or to sing? You can say, that doesn't sound right. God's word is constantly being distorted because that's how the deceiver works. Do you know it well enough? 
The other reason this word is distorted is because now the deceiver, the serpent, wants the woman to think about the restrictions of God, not the freedom of God. Did he really prevent you from all of this? Did he really keep all of this from you? And now there's a new tone. Creation is no longer for man and woman. God is keeping it from man and woman. There's something he's hiding. There's a restriction he doesn't want you to have. There's freedom that he's trying to keep from you. Isn't this what happens with people that often walk away from Christianity? Too many rules. Too many restrictions. There's a greater freedom. There's a greater way to live life. Surely he wouldn't say that. Surely I can define my gender how I want to. God would never put something in his word that would suggest otherwise. Surely I can marry whoever I want. Otherwise, that's too restricting, and God is a God of love. Surely God doesn't care how I spend my money. What can I find in the scriptures that justify my own greed and luxury? How many times is it distorted? Driven by this fact that we aren't comfortable with restrictions. We want more freedom. And so the serpent lays this first statement out there, and we can see its immediate impact on the woman based on a response. Because she offers a response. that says, well, no, God said we can eat from the other trees. We just can't eat from that one in the middle. If we do, if we touch it, we eat of it, we'll die. And what she's done is she now has also dropped Yahweh Elohim. And she has distorted the character of God. And now she doesn't just affirm what has been given, but she elaborates on the restriction, bringing up the idea of death. And so now she's thinking about the restrictions that God has placed. And with that statement of death, now we have the reaction where the serpent can lay both the lie and the temptation. And so how does he do this? He starts with shock and awe. In fact, in the Hebrew, the way you would read his response would almost be like him saying, die? Die? You will not die? And that statement, God's a liar. Surely not. He is keeping something from you. He has deceived you. That won't happen. How many times do we look at something that we know isn't right for us and we still move forward not caring about the repercussions? Taking God's word as if it doesn't carry any weight or significance because we've bought into this idea that we know better. And so there's the lie. You will not die. Don't worry about the restriction. There is a greater freedom that is in store for you. And with that deception laid, now the temptation. And here's where it all begins to sink in. You will not die. You will be like God. Boom. Power. That's the temptation. That's what's alluring. Now, you and I don't walk around today in today's context often thinking of ourselves as God. It's not typically the mentality that we have. And so how does this temptation manifest itself? How do we get a sense of that power? How do we get a sense of that control and that greater freedom? By knowing good and evil. See, anytime you see the word knowledge in the biblical context, it's more than just intellect. Right? It's more than just information. It's experiential. And so the temptation was, you get to experience good and evil for yourself. You get to decide freedom and constraints, not God. You're the one that gets to make those determinations. And that's what lures us in. And that's 
the morality that we so frequently gravitate to. I get to determine if getting drunk or high is really wrong because I'm going to go experience it for myself. I get to determine which pleasures to indulge in and what is too lustful or not too lustful or how to spend my money or what I think about the right to life or another race or status or all these other things. I get to make the decision because that gives me power. I get to know good and evil for myself. And now we have unearthed the heart of every sin. The deception fully laid. Question God's character. Question and distort his word. Make him seem untrustworthy. Get people to focus on the restrictions rather than the promises. Call God a liar and promise something that isn't real. Every sin follows that path in some capacity. And so the deception is laid out. And a couple of observations I want to make. First, look at how quickly it unfolded. Two statements. Two sentences from the serpent. That was it. You and I have to always be on guard, always vigilant to how quickly these deceptions can emerge. None of us are immune to it. It can happen like that. So quick. And at the same time, we have to recognize that it was still simply a deception. The fall had not yet occurred. What had happened now is we had seen this drama unfold with the sermon taking Eve to the edge of the cliff and saying, jump. And now we watch with bated breath. What will she do? Who will she choose? What will she follow? What is she thinking? And that's how the story unfolds. What is described next? Now that she sees that the fruit was good, right? That it was pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. Now we can see how everything has changed. Up until this point, it was only God that rose up and declared something was good. But now Eve is making her own determination. This is good. And how is she making that determination? By what she saw, not by what she heard. It's desirable. I covet it. I desire it. That alluring temptation. It was good for gaining Wisdom. I want that knowledge. I want that power. And we can see the deception has taken root in her heart. And then it happens. And the manner in which the fall happens is so startling with the brevity in which it's described. After this elaborate deception that is constantly laid out, what we have are three successive verbs that happen almost back to back. She took, she ate, she gave. Isn't that how it typically happens? We war, we wrestle, we contemplate, and then we decide, and boom, rebellion, act, deceit, power, lust, fill it in. It happens like that. And with the fall, we see the result. Her eyes are, in fact, open, but what is she now? Nakedness. But not the innocence of before but an overwhelming understanding that she sits under God's judgment. She and Adam both. Everything changed. This is the great tragedy of the human condition. This is the great tragedy of sin and brokenness of which none of us can escape. And part of what we need to see here is not just be alarmed that man and woman fell, but that in today's context, just how far we have fallen. That we live in a context now where people don't just merely question the character of God, but his mere existence. 
we no longer really feel ashamed of rebellion, we actually applaud it. And it just gets worse and worse. And so where does it leave us? How do we respond to such a tragedy? A couple things I would suggest to you today. First of all, we need to understand that the, the tactics of this deception never end. It is a war that continually wages against us. And we have to always be on guard against it. So a question every single one of us must ask ourselves this morning is, am I being deceived? Am I being led astray? Have I gone and drifted in the wrong direction? And maybe the best way to ask ourselves that question, honestly, is to also ask, what tribe am I really following? What is my code of morality? Am I concerned about right and left, red and blue? Am I concerned in using a litmus test built on a political ideology or a personal ideology? What is using, what am I using to determine these things? Now let's be honest with ourselves for a moment because here's the reality. The deceiver doesn't care. He doesn't care if you're right, left, Republican, Democrat, red, blue, clean or addict, black, white, rich, poor. Doesn't care as long as you're not his. And so the greatest temptation he can put in front of you is to lure you away with the one thing you care about most, yourself. So what are you following? Whose tribe do you really belong to? See, what I think we need to be compelled with today is to acknowledge if we have drifted astray, astray, our first call is repentance. And we turn back. And we come back to our Creator. What we need to see is that the greater understanding we have of the tactics of this deception, the better equipped we are to guard against it in the future. That we are not to be trusted. The scriptures say there's a way that seems right to mankind, but in the end it leads to death. Your trust is not in yourself, it's in your king. He defines right and wrong, not you. He's the one that makes that determination. I love this quote. Russell Moore wrote a phenomenal blog post about all this stuff not too long ago. And here's how he says it. He identifies this inconsistency, this, this way in which we can be led astray, this spirit that so easily deceives. And he says, when we encounter the spirit, we should call it what it is. We shouldn't look around to see if the crowd around us will give us permission to serve the vulnerable neighbor before us, whether the neighbor is unborn, elderly, poor, racially oppressed, sexually assaulted, an immigrant, or a refugee. For those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, his lordship means that we don't pick and choose what he defines as justice. We don't get to tell him what neighbor or person or relevant issue means. His voice says, come, follow me. He doesn't adjust his definition of justice to our ideological tribes, especially as they seek to make invisible whatever image bearers are inconvenient to their movements. We do this because we know our lives are lived not by the approval of the crowd, but before the face of God. So whose face are you living before? Whose approval are you seeking? The hope is that this tragedy awakens us to seek him and him alone and to trust him and him alone. What is that image that we can cling to, to know a life that lives in front of the face of God and seeks his approval alone? Here's the image I want to close with. As you all know, the last few weeks I've been reintroduced to what it means to raise a young child. 
And all the times that you look at that child and you say, yes, no. To watch them grab something and begin to throw it and say, no, 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 you can't do that. To watch them begin to hit someone and say, no, 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 we don't hit. Or to affirm them when they do something good, to applaud them when they do something right, and to constantly teach them those things. Right? They're at that, that stage where they need to have someone else tell them right and wrong. And I know that the only way that these children listen to their parents is if they trust them. And they know they're loved. And so a child will express trust in a lot of different ways. And one of my favorites and one of the ones that I've seen so much recently are these moments when, when my new son comes up to me and he just lifts his hands. And without saying a word, he's saying, hold me. Pick me up. Bring me in close and remind me that I belong to you. So I know that I'm loved and I know that I can trust you. That's the posture we carry. That we would be able to run to our Creator with hands and hearts lifted high, saying, I am broken, I am sinful, save me. Hold me close, remind me of your promises, remind me of your covenant, remind me of your love, that I would know I belong to Yahweh Elohim. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that if there's anything that I've said today that is misleading or confusing or untrue, that you would protect each of us from it. Father, we confess that this is a passage that is weighty and difficult in understanding for all of its intricacies, but what we do know and what we want to bring to you now is nothing but surrender and adoration and worship. And so I pray that for each of us that are here in this moment, God, if there are things that have led us astray, then may we confess them to you now and turn and repent and come back to you in humble adoration. Father, help us to be reminded today, not just of this tragedy, but of a promise that you are a God who saves, you are a God who rescues, and you are the only one mighty enough to do it. So we thank you for hard truths. May we steward them well so that we might be saved and you might be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.